This is the Coalition of Christ-Exalting Churches, a network of churches in Northern California that are working together to advance the gospel by strengthening one another and planting new churches. Go to coalitioncec.org to find out more information about how you can help. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Jess Arns from Coalition CEC. Uh, today's podcast is the second part of a four-part series with Dr. John Street. It was recorded at Community Bible Church in Vallejo for our fall workshop, and it was on biblical reconciliation. And the first part was on getting to the heart of conflict. This part is entitled Repentance Toward Reconciliation, and it covers the very important uh, topic of repentance and how it plays into biblical reconciliation. So I know that you'll be blessed by it and especially blessed if you implement what is being taught. It's thoroughly biblical and very, very helpful. So without any further ado, let's have a listen. Talking about the heart and that this is at the very core of conflict because of the pleasures that do battle. We saw in James chapter four, the pleasures that do battle inside. We want something and yet somebody else wants something else. In this particular session, we, if we're able to identify the heart idols that are involved in a conflict situation, the next thing has to do with understanding repentance. Repentance, that is, the person that's been involved in sin needs to repent of that sin. And you notice the comments we put in your notes there that the resolution of conflict involves a careful understanding and practice of repentance. Confession of sin is a pro- is proved genuine when it's followed by a thorough repentance. Repentance involves a change of mind that is so complete that it leads to a change of life. Let me stop there for a moment. I know that out in the evangelical world, and that was primarily popularized by Dallas Theological Seminary, was a view of repentance that was based upon the etymology of the word metanoeo, which meant to change the mind. And repentance became just a cognitive process. But that's a very short-sighted view of the biblical New Testament concept of repentance. Repentance was always used and context flavors the meaning of a word. In the New Testament, it was always used within the context of of life change. When a person was genuinely repentant, there was a life change that occurred. It wasn't just a change of mind. It was a change of mind that was so complete that it led to a change of life. That's what repentance should be. And that's what we should be looking towards. Now, back to the introduction here. God is clear that he does not desire mere peace. He desires complete and full reconciliation. You can see that in Matthew 5. We already read that, verses 23 through 26. Romans 12, 15 through 21. Now, the word repent basically means to turn or to change. It's best illustrated by the picture of someone who is walking one way and does a 180-degree turn and heads the opposite direction. Um, I served back in the 1970s in the U.S. Air Force, and they taught us how to march. And, of course, whoever was in command of that flight would uh, be commanding it and say, about face, and everybody would go the opposite direction. Well, that's the idea of repentance, all right, going the opposite direction, doing an about face. And repentance is a necessary component of genuine conversion. We know that from Luke 3.3, 3, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Unsaved people must turn from sin, which is the state of self-rule that they've lived in as their own Lord and Master, Romans 10.9, 1 John 3.4. Now follow me in your thinking here. Repentance then also remains continually necessary after conversion. Psalm 51, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. 
Saved persons must turn from sins, which are the specific symptoms of the lingering disease called the flesh. Romans 7, 14 through 25, Galatians 5, 15 60, 17. All human repentance has reference to a turning from the state or occurrence of sin and turning to God for forgiveness and renewal. Scripture often alludes to a false repentance that does not actually bring forgiveness. Like Matthew 3, where John the Baptist criticizes the the Pharisees, uh, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, he said. Or 2 Corinthians 7.10, we'll take a look at later. So we must understand some elements, some effects, some examples of repentance in order to practice it ourselves and to help others do so as well. So we want to take a look at that. What if a person is able to, and if you're able to help a person identify the idol of their heart, the real change in terms of regeneration that occurs in the heart has to begin with repentance. And this this becomes key. So let's take a look at this in regards to some of the elements of true repentance. The first key element here has to do with comprehending. You must understand the truth that is relevant to our sin and our Savior before you can repent. Um, and of course, the Greek word most often translated with repentance is metanoeo, which means a change of mind. But we said that it's a change of mind that is so complete that it leads ultimately to a change of life. That's what it does. That's what it's supposed to do. So when a person is truly repentant over what they've done, then it's vitally important that they um, it, they do a complete about face. So just saying I'm sorry is not repentance. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that we're supposed to say, I'm sorry. All that does is just dump bad feelings on another person. Now, is it bad to say you're sorry? No, I'm not saying it's bad, but that's not repentance. I mean, you feel bad about what you did. You should feel bad about what you do have done that's sinful. But just saying you're sorry doesn't fix anything. Um, what do you mean by that when you say, I'm sorry? Do you just want to get rid of the guilt of what you did? What did you do that was wrong? What do you need to get right? Or who do you need to get right with? Becomes critical questions. Not just saying, I'm sorry. Not just expressing that you feel bad about the conflict or about what has happened between you and the other person. We do a lot of that. And I'm going to talk about this later. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say we're supposed to apologize either. All right? In fact... Our English word to apologize comes from a Greek term, apologia, which means to throw up a defense or to make an excuse for why I did what I did. I'm sorry that my fist hit you in the mouth, but I tripped over a rock and the sun was in my eyes and, you know, that's that's what apologies do. Apologies just share that you feel bad, saying you're sorry just pulls the dump truck of emotions up and dumps it on the other person. No, when we repent, we've got to realize and fully and completely comprehend what we have done that is wrong. And we've got to be willing to admit that. We've got to be willing to admit that. That's part of confession. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. We've got to admit it. That's confession. But fully comprehending it involves now 
not just the fact that I have sinned against the other person, but first and foremost, in sinning against them, I have sinned against God. That is really key. First and foremost, because I've sinned against them, I have sinned against God. This is such a critical thing to understand. And I'm going to want then to do anything that I can to make it right. Or I'm going to want to do anything I can to get involved with people who I have wronged in order to make it right. All of that is part of comprehending. The second element has to do with confessing. And the twofold nature of inward confession is revealed in the meaning of the word homo legao. Homo is just a Greek word which means the same as. Legao is to say or to speak. So confession means to say the same thing as. In, in, in a biblical context, homo legao means to say the same thing as God says about it. I see that attitude in my life. I see that sin in my life, and I call it what God calls it. That is a sin. I label it a sin. I, I stick a label on it and say, I realize that that is a sin in my life. You have to acknowledge this to God, as well as the fact of your sin, and agree with God about the nature of your sin as well. I am always using, when I'm doing counseling, Proverbs 28 and verse 13. You're familiar with this, I'm sure. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Compassion. Concealing a sin... God says, you want to guarantee your life's not going to prosper? Then just conceal sin. Cover it over. Um, this is such a key area for us to understand when it comes to how God wants us to deal with sin. Go back to Psalm 32. David writes here, and it's described as a maskil, which means it, it was a teaching psalm. This is something that David would regularly teach from. Psalm 32, he said, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We're going to come back here and talk about that verse when we talk about forgiveness. And then he says in verse 2, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and who, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For, my, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, this is ha has some beautiful imagery here, as well as beautiful thoughts for a person who is confessing sin. One of the things you begin to understand here, when you study the first five verses, is that what I choose to uncover before God, God covers with his forgiveness. Okay, there's the idea. What I choose, I choose to make naked before God. What I choose to uncover in terms of my sin before God, God then covers with his forgiveness. That's what he says in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I uncovered my iniquity before you. I became naked before you. And now you covered me with forgiveness. And this is a major problem in our, in our day and age, especially with contemporary Christianity, because people are, they have found elaborate ways of excusing their sin. Because we live in a culture 
that loves to be victims. Nobody's a perpetrator. Nobody's culpable. Everybody's a victim. I'm always a victim of what somebody else has done. I'm always a victim of their attitude or their action. And so as a result of that, I'm not responsible for anything. I'm at the mercy of how other people treated me and circumstances that have occurred in my life and the way that my mother and father brought me up. My mother didn't breastfeed me properly. That's the reason why I have all these problems. We always find some kind of elaborate psychotherapeutic excuse in order to not admit and confess our sin. And, And psychotherapy today is inventing all kinds of new excuses. It's just continuing to go on with their own labels. Nobody's culpable anymore. Dr. Carl Meringer, probably the greatest psychologist that America's ever produced, wrote a book, Whatever Became of Sin. (laughs) Imagine that, a secular therapist asking the question, Whatever Became of Sin. But that was one of the theses of his particular book was the fact that nobody's responsible for anything anymore. Everybody's always a victim. All right? Where it used to be that when a person committed a sin, they would seek forgiveness, they would repent of that sin and go to God and seek it. Now, because nobody sins anymore, stripped out of the cultural verbiage are words like repentance, contrition, um, words like... Um, uh, culpability. You, you don't see words like that anymore. They're all gone because nobody's culpable for anything. Nobody's responsible for anything. And this is going to be a huge mountain for you to overcome when you're dealing and trying to mediate a conflict. Helping a person to see that they're responsible where they're willing to comprehend their sin against the other person and ultimately that which is against God and then confess that sin, label it what God labels it, that attitude, that deed, those words were sinful. I put a label on it the way God labels it. It's ungodly. So we've got to acknowledge that fact to God first and agree with God about the nature of our sin This is really key. I'll never forget, several years ago, I had a pastor and his wife come to me. They were having marital problems. And this guy came out of a Methodist background and a Methodist church. And right in the middle of the counseling, he looked at me with all sincerity and he said to me, I just want to let you know I don't sin anymore. I make mistakes, but I don't sin. And his wife did one of these things. All right. (laughs) I wish I had a recording of that. All right. And of course, he had, he believed in a Wesleyan approach to sanctification that says, I've basically received a second blessing, which has catapulted me to a level now where I don't sin anymore. I may, I may make mistakes, but they're unintentional. I don't, I don't sin. And so the implication then was, uh, in this marriage counseling, don't look at me because I'm not sinning. <laughs> look at her. All right, there, there's the person you really need to deal with. And I, I took him over to 1 John. Grab your Bible, go over to 1 John. Chapter 1 and verse 8. And I said, the Apostle John's writing this. You believe the Apostle John wrote this, didn't you? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Look what John says. If we, that's an inclusive we. John's including himself in this as an apostle. Say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. What do you think about that? Now, the only way you can rationalize that is that John, as an apostle, never received the second blessing. (laughs) 
Now we're in deep trouble. The apostles all were a bunch of sinners. They never got the second blessing, which, which is a very twisted view of sanctification. It's, not, it's a false view. And, of course, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and, and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But verse 10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And I'm telling you, I gained involvement with that wife. <laughs> right at that point in counseling, she's going, I like this counselor. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but the idea is, if you're, not, if you're not a sinner, then you can't confess anything. And, and we literally have a whole culture of people that way. They, they fill our churches. They're not responsible for anything. Now, I think for us as church leaders, it begins with us modeling it. When we do something wrong, we need to openly acknowledge it, confess it as sin, and move forward. We've got to be willing to do that. We're going to set the... They're watching us as their model. And we've got to be able to follow through with that. And if it's not true in our own life, then how, do we, how in the world are we going to expect the people in our church to follow this? We've got to be willing to confess to other people that we wrong, we erred, it's a sin against God, I've asked God to forgive me, now I'm coming to you to ask you to forgive me, will you forgive me of this sin? Now that's really critical. So, that's confessing. Now, Take your Bible again. Let's go over. I told you we'd come back to this verse. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want you to look at this with fresh new eyes. I'm sure you've read this before. But I want you to look at this with fresh new eyes as if you were reading it for the first time. Verse 10. He says, For sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There's a contrast now that Paul makes between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. He says the characteristics of godly sorrow always involves, guess what, repentance without regret. Now, that's really key. Without regret. Um, sometimes in counseling, I like to illustrate it as lot and his family leaving Sodom and Gomorrah. God had said to Lot and his family, leave Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, they left. They all behaviorally did what they were supposed to do. But even though Lot's wife, her body had left Sodom and Gomorrah, her heart was still back there. So she, that's where she was raised. That's where she was brought up. That's all she knew. That's where all of her friends were. So she's looking over her shoulder, longing to be back there with what she knew. And God turns her to a pillar of salt. If there ever is an illustration of hypocritical behavior, that's one. huh? Your body leaves, you obey God externally, but your heart still, wow, I really wish I was back there in that sin. I have dealt with guys, guys who have committed adultery on their wife repeatedly. And I can tell. It doesn't take me very long as a counselor at all to tell that, yeah, yeah, he got caught. Yeah, he supposedly repented. But you know what? His heart's still back there with that other woman. He's still back there. In his own mind, he said, oh, man. That was such a great relationship. You see, when there's genuine repentance, there is no regret leaving your sin. You are happy you've left your sin. You want to stay away from that sin like it's a plague. That it's toxic to you. That's what you do. You choose to do that. You confess it. 
There's got to be remorse. There's got to be no regret in leaving it. There has to be godly sorrow. I'm sorry for the fact that I even committed that sin to begin with. And you can see the evidence of that in the Corinthian church. In fact, actually, Paul is commending them. In verse 11, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, in everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. In other words, once they have left the sin, they put it behind them once and for all, and they weren't interested in returning to it at all. And they were zealous to prove themselves righteous. But worldly sorrow is not like that. At the end of verse 10, he says, the sorrow of the world produces death. After Cain killed his brother Abel. I've always been fascinated with the Hebrew name Abel. It's the word of all. And it, the word of all evolved in the Hebrew language later on when the book of Ecclesiastes was written, of all Havilim, of all Havilim, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Or vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. The actual name of Abel, of all, now becomes vanity. And it means it was only here for, his life was only here for a short amount of time, like smoke, and then it was gone. Like breath on a cold day, it was there for a short amount of time and gone. All right, Aval Havalim, Aval Havalim. That his life was snuffed out in a short amount of time because of his brother Abel. And Abel is overcome with sorrow. Not in repentance. It was a worldly sorrow. This punishment that God has given me is too great for me to bear, he says. That's worldly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. Esau was the same thing. Esau evidenced enormous worldly sorrow. He wasn't sorry, sorrowful that he sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge. He wasn't sorrowful over that. He was just sorrowful that that he didn't have a birthright anymore. He, he gave away eternal blessings for temporal blessings. And then you get the same thing with Judas. Judas betrays Jesus, right? I mean, was he sorrowful over what he did? Sure he was. How do we know that? Because he took the 30 pieces of silver, threw it back in the temple area, and he has an opportunity at that particular point to repent, and God would have forgiven him. But instead of repenting, what does he do? Goes out and commits suicide. Goes out and commits suicide. This is such a critical area. I am absolutely convinced, and I, I don't necessarily need to, mean to communicate to you that my experience is normative, but I'm going to tell you, 60% of the people that I work with, men and women, who are dealing with severe depression, at the very core of it is guilt. Unresolved guilt. 60% of it. Um, that's a big issue. Because the church isn't dealing with guilt anymore. We don't even take guilt seriously anymore. And if there is no guilt, then there is no sin. And there is no sin, there is no repentance, there is no confession. It's amazing how if people deal with past guilt in their life biblically, how that helps them with their present disposition. It's amazing how that happens. So we've got to be willing to confess our sins. That means there's going to be repentance. There's going to be godly sorrow. There's not going to be any regret for leaving my sin. In fact, I'm happy to have left that sin. I'm happy about it. The third area 
has to do with choosing. Choosing, this is a key word. True repentance always involves a willful resolve not to repeat the sin again. A willful resolve not to repeat the sin again. Take your Bible, go back to Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17. The ancient rabbis used to call this the nine deeds of repentance. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. There they are. Proof of true repentance. When, when a person is genuinely repentant, they want to do everything that they can to not do that sin again. They're going to put that into their life. They're going to put obstacles in their life that they're going to run into if they desire to return to that sin. And then they're going to put facilitators in their life that they're going to make it easy to do righteously when faced with the same temptation again. And as a mediator, you can help them do that. You can help them put obstacles in their lives that they keep bumping into. Sometimes we call it burning bridges. So if you want to return to that sin, all of a sudden you come to the river and there's no bridge. You want to put in their life obstacles so that when they return to that sin, it's going to be really hard for them to go back into that sin. And then facilitators in their life, you're going to plow the ground, so to speak, and, and lay a, a straight path towards righteousness so they'll always respond righteously. That's part of that choosing. They've got to choose to do that. And remembering all along what Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You're going to deal with a lot of people who don't have this view at all, and you've got to bring them back to a biblical view. I mean, how many times have I heard a some guy saying counseling to me, you know, I know God's big enough. Oh, when I hear that, I know bad stuff is coming. <laughs> I know God will forgive me, but I'm going to divorce her anyhow. What is that? This is what the Old Testament calls, there's a difference between unintentional sin and presumptuous or what is referred to as high-handed sin. High-handed sin. This is high-handed sin. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyhow. I'm going to do it anyhow. And God says, one of the characteristics of high-handed sin, this is what David writes in Psalm 19. He says, and, and keep me back from presumptuous sin. Let them not rule over me. Because one of the characteristics of presumptuous sin is that they have a control over our life after that. Because when we, when we willfully decide to go against what we know God says is wrong, it's a sin, then what we've done is we've weighed it out and we've weighed it, what are the benefits and what are the, the consequences? And we weigh it out in our minds and the benefits exceed the consequences or so in our thinking it does and we go ahead and commit the sin then the next time the opportunity for such a sin comes along that same weight is still there oh the benefits exceed the consequences and there may not be any immediate consequences but eventually there will be because Proverbs 13 15 says the way the transgressor is hard the way a transgressor is hard. Proverbs 13, 21 says, 
adversity pursues sinners. Charles Spurgeon used to say it like this. When you decide to presumptuously sin, when you decide to do this, God releases the hounds of heaven and they start nipping at your heels. All right? God releases the hounds of heaven and they start nipping at your heels. That's presumptuous sin. That's very willful sin. I know God's going to forgive me, but I'm going to divorce her anyhow. Really? Really? And you think that somehow this is going to clear the way in your life and you can later on go back, oh, God, forgive me, but I'm married to another woman now and everything. What? Really? You think there's not going to be any long-term consequences to that? It's like a man who robs a bank, gets caught, hides the money, says he's really sorry, but he doesn't return the money. Oh, I'm really sorry about what I did. Where's the money? (laughs) That's the way Christians functions all the time. They do that. They sin. Try to hide it. And act as if, oh, wow, I'm really sorry about what happened. Some of you are old enough to remember President Clinton. He goes in front of national television back in the 1990s asking everybody in the country to forgive him. He's sorry for his affair with Monica Lewinsky. He's sorry for all of that. At the very same time that he was on national television, his lawyers were in court trying to prove that he was innocent of what he was saying that he was sorry for. That's the way a lot of Christians functions today. I'm really sorry about what happened, but then they've got this whole mechanism where they're trying to demonstrate that they're really innocent in the matter. What are you really sorry for? So these three elements are really key. You have to comprehend what has happened. Primarily, it's a sin against God, whatever the case may be. And, of course, against the other person, you need to ask both for forgiveness. Then there's confession of that sin, saying the same thing that God says about it. And then a willful choosing not to repeat that sin ever again. Those three things have to be a part of what true repentance is about. Now, with that said, what are the effects? And this is kind of interesting. What are the effects? We don't often talk about this. In fact, I was just, I'm an elder down at Grace Community Church, and we were just talking this past Thursday night about a situation, a discipline situation that's going on in our church, and the fact that this particular individual is not repentant at all, and one of the ways that we know it is because it's lacking some of these very effects. They verbally say that they're repentant, but there's no effects going on in their life. No effects. What do we mean by that? Well, although repentance itself is an inward turning that takes place in the heart and the mind, it inevitably leads to a change in other areas of that person's life. If it's not accompanied or followed by such effects when they're appropriate, then it's not real repentance, but a false one that fails to bring about forgiveness. So what should accompany genuine repentance? Well, the first thing is restitution. Restitution. The word means to set things right. That's what it means. The repentant sinner must fulfill any of the obligations to the offended party. Many examples of that throughout Scripture, Exodus 22 and verse 1, Leviticus 5.15, Luke 19, 1 through 10. In fact, grab your Bible. Let's go over to Luke passage just by way of example. You know this story. It's the story of Zacchaeus.
And Zacchaeus was a small man of stature, so he climbs up into a nearby tree so he can see Jesus passing by. Um, and, um, and Jesus turns to him in verse 5, it says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay in your, at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Verse 7 says, when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. We still consider tax collectors sinners today. <laughs> they did in the first century, too. Verse 8 Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of all my possessions I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Wow! I don't think you fully appreciate what he's saying here. Because back in the first century, tax collectors uh, collected money for Rome and would have to send it off to Rome, and they were allowed to charge more. That was part of their payment. But some tax collectors charged way beyond in order to support themselves and their family. And so tax collectors in those days were very wealthy people. They were very wealthy people. And for Zacchaeus to say, imagine you're Zacchaeus. And you say to the Lord, Lord, everything I own, half of it, I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody of anything, I'm going to give them back what I've defrauded them four times. Ha! Four times what I defrauded them. Jesus, what does he say? Verse 9. And he said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In other words, what is Jesus recognizing here? Genuine repentance. Why? He's willing to make restitution. That's why. He's willing to make restitution. That involves an outward confession when it's appropriate, as James 5.16 says, and a willingness to accept the consequences of our sin, as Psalm 51, David does in verses 3 and 4. Let me share an example of this. Back several years ago when I was senior pastor there in, in Ohio, um, we had two young men in our congregation, uh, entrepreneurial type of young men, had a great idea to start a business. And they did the right thing. They designed the business, laid it out, brochures and everything. And, and they took it to all the Christian businessmen in our church and got their opinion. What do you think about this? Do you think this is a good idea? Da, 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 da. And to, to every single businessman in our congregation looked at, studied it through, came back to them and said, this is a great idea. I think it's a great idea. I think you ought to do it. The problem was these two young men didn't have any startup capital. That's the way it always is when you're young, right? No startup capital. Great ideas, no startup capital. And there was another woman in our church who had, in the past two years, become a widow. Her husband had left her with a nice chunk of money, not, not huge, she wasn't wealthy, but a pretty good chunk of money. And so these young men concocted the idea of going to the widow and saying, listen, if you're willing to invest in our company, then we're going to pay you back with interest after the first couple of years. Um, all your money, plus it'll make more than anything you've got invested in. She was a very gracious woman. She said, okay, you're Christian young men. You've gotten the approval of all the businessmen in the congregation. They think it's a great idea. Let's do it. So she gave them six figures. All right. Startup capital. They started this thing gangbusters. And they started making money hand over fist. It was just going great. Money, money coming in, money, money coming in. And all of a sudden, some of you will remember this, in the mid-1990s, the bottom fell out of the entire economy. Not only 
did they lose all of her money, but all the money that they had made, they lost that. No way to recoup it, had to dissolve the company. So, as Christian young men, they went back to the widow and they said to her, We're really sorry. We had no idea this was going to happen in the U.S. economy. The idea was a great idea. We need to ask you to forgive us because we have no money to pay you back. And she was a very gracious lady, and she said, I'm willing to forgive you. Great. And so two young men were ready to walk away, wash their hands of that, until their meddlesome pastor got involved. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up the train. You promised her. You promised her that you were going to pay her back. And either your word is as good as gold or it's worthless. Your word is worthless. We don't have a job. We've got young families. I know, I know. I mean, if you've got to go down here to McDonald's and flip hamburgers, you're going to go to McDonald's and flip hamburgers. Really? Yeah, restitution's important. Your word's on the line here. Either your word means something or it doesn't mean anything. Okay, pastor, what do we do? Go get a job. I don't know whether it's sweeping floors or flipping hamburgers, whatever you can get a job, get a job. They did. Took them six years to pay her back, but they paid her back with interest. Now, their word is as good as gold, right? Which is far worth far more than just going out and making money, getting wealthy. Now everybody knows their word is as good as gold. Restitution is seldom talked about, and yet it is a necessary effect of genuine repentance, Is there going to be restitution? Now, I realize in some areas you can't bring about a restitution. Maybe the person that you defrauded or something that was wrong has died now and you can't do that. Maybe you can help their family. I don't know. Whatever the case may be. The fact that there's got to be a willingness to do it is key. There has to be there. The second thing that's key is what we're talking about today, and that is reconciliation. The second thing, that's an effect of repentance. When your sin has resulted in a broken relationship with another person, true repentance will cause you to do everything you can to transform that conflict into a peaceful and edifying friendship. Everything you can. Sometimes the best way I like to illustrate this is is, uh, sometimes parents... When their two kids get into a fight, mom or dad or jump in the middle of that fight, and they'll say, now stop that. I don't want you to do that. I want you to ask each other to forgive. And now I want both of you to go to your rooms. All right? Which is just the opposite of what should be happening. No, you ought to take them, the two that just got into a fight, ask each other's forgiveness, repent before God for what they did, the wicked, hateful things they did to one another. And you need to put them together in a small room. Closets are very nice for this. (laughs) And teach them to play together. That's reconciliation. What happens when there's been a conflict in churches? What happens? And finally, somebody says, okay, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Yes, I'm willing to forgive you. And then those two parties avoid each other. No, 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 no. There ought to be real reconciliation. That's what honors Christ. Those parties are brought together And they have a better relationship after the reconciliation has taken place than they had before the conflict occurred. 
Reconciliation. Not go to your separate rooms. No. Not go to your separate rooms. You need to bring the two parties together and teach them how to have a reconciled relationship. That's what we're in. That's why I said at the very beginning, our goal here is not peacemaking. That's only a step in our goal. Our goal is not conflict resolution. That's only a step in our goal. Our goal is conflict reconciliation. That's radically different than the world's concept of conflict resolution. It goes further because it takes seriously the unity of the body of Christ. It takes seriously the unity of the body of Christ. That's what has to happen. This is really critical. Let me give you an illustration of this. Go over to Romans 12. Romans 12. You study Romans 12, 1, within its context, you realize that the Roman church had major conflict going on between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And the Apostle Paul is arguing for there to be a unity in that church between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Now, we have so exercised out of its context, Romans 12, 1, we totally miss what's going on within the argument. We have a tendency to think that Romans 12, 1 is all about me laying my body as a sacrifice on the altar for Jesus. Well, doesn't that sound good? I can preach that. Laying my body on the sacrifice for Jesus. But that's not at all what Romans 12, 1 is saying. Romans 1, 12, 1 is saying, therefore I urge you, brethren, you is plural, brethren is plural, by the mercies of God to present your plural, bodies plural. Now the next word is the most important word in the entire verse. A, living and holy sacrifice. It's not about me laying my body on the altar for Jesus. It's about us laying a single sacrifice unified together, reconciled together on the, on the altar for Christ. That's what it's about. He says that in verse 3, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think of himself so as to have a sound judgment as God has allowed a, a treasure, a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body. He says, all of this is really critical. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. It all has to do with our unity within the body of Christ. That's key. That reconciliation has to be there. The third element that I think is really key or effect, I should say, is that of regret. Regret. Now we said, based upon 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, that we do not have any regret leaving the sin. And that's true. But there is a regret for having done the sin in the first place. Follow me? We don't regret leaving the sin, but there is a regret for having done the sin in the first place. True repentance may not always be accompanied by emotions, especially those that are visible to other people. But in many cases, a feeling of sorrow collaborates other evidences and points to a real change in thinking. Emotional responses alone, however, do not prove that repentance is genuine. That's really true. As Proverbs 26 and verse 11 says, a dog returns to its vomit. All right? Grab your Bible. Go over to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. 
2 Peter 2.22. Look at this carefully because I think this is critical in our understanding of repentance. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22. Peter quotes Proverbs 26.11. He says, as it happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its vomit. And then Peter adds this. And a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Now, why is that so significant? Well, you can take a pig, you can wash a pig, you can perfume a pig, you can put a big red bow around that pig's neck, and the moment you let that pig go, that pig's going to find the nearest mud puddle, jump right back in. Why? Because, listen, it is the nature of a pig to wallow in mud. It's the nature of a dog to eat its vomit. When you have a person who is returning to their sin and returning to their sin and returning to their sin, they're not repentant. The implication is this, that based upon the illustration of the dog and and the pig, that genuine repentance, listen to me, changes our nature. Genuine repentance changes our nature. We don't want to go back to the sin. And in fact, we unbelievably regret having done it in the first place. We regret it. This is what has happened. Or should happen. So we have to remember then that every case of repentance requires, not every case of repentance requires all the above changes that we just talked about. Every case of repentance doesn't necessarily involve restitution. Um, It doesn't always involve reconciliation, but most of the time does, and regret. But We must also be very careful to allow the fruits of repentance to be defined by God and not by man. We don't make up homemade remedies of jumping through hoops to get people or to show that they're repentant. That doesn't constitute biblical repentance. The Pharisees, the first century, used to rend their garments to show how repentant they are before God. That's That's a human display doesn't mean that they're necessarily genuinely repentant is the idea. So some good examples of repentance. David talks about this. Psalm 51, verse 4, where he talks about against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight after his sin with Bathsheba. Now, I don't think that David is here saying it's only against God that he sinned. In fact, the word against in the Hebrew language can also be translated before. Can literally be translated before. I think that's better what it should be translated. Before thee and thee only have I sinned. Because David thought he had done this sin in secret. How do we know that he had sinned against others? Because later on he talks about his own blood guiltiness in relationship to Uriah. Because he had put Uriah to death. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned ultimately against God. So it is against God. He had thought he had done it in secret until Nathan the prophet came to him and made it public. And then we can see this in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 through 11. And I referred to that earlier. I now rejoice, Paul says, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Now that's what genuine repentance does. We are made sorrowful according to the will of God. That's true repentance. Well, which now brings us to, and in our next session, we are going to open Pandora's box. Okay? So I'm going to turn this back to Jess and uh, let him give you instructions about lunch. You're looking hungry anyhow.
Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Coalition of Christ Exalting Churches. For more information about upcoming workshops or how to support us, go to coalitioncec.org.